to record over what you already have? No. Is it recorded? Yes. Okay. Well, listen. We'll risk losing the... Uh... Okay. Listen, um, so I want to talk in this hour about the eschatological consciousness of Christ. Paul Rahner, the Jesuit theologian, in his major work, Foundations of Christian Faith, argued that in the face of modern historical critical scholarship, theologians have to be able to maintain historical rational arguments for at least two central features of the gospel. These are things you have to go for, to the wall for, as our father Augustine de Noyer would say, from a historical point of view. First, that Jesus of Nazareth truly thought of himself or possessed an awareness of himself as the definitive eschatological figure in the history of Israel. Now by eschatological, I mean bringing in final age. Eschaton in Greek means last things. So that Jesus saw himself as the ultimate or final emissary of God. As one who was designated in a particular way to manifest the definitive saving will of God for the people of Israel. But therefore, because Israel has a mission to all the nations, as the one who would manifest the definitive saving will of God to all peoples, to the other peoples, the Gentile nations. Therefore, to be brief, Jesus saw himself as the culmination of salvation history. Bronner says if you can't at least get that as a, a principle that you can defend historically about the historical Jesus, you know, it's time to pack our bags and go get a banking job. You know, really, Christianity's going out of business. Okay? Secondly, that Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified due to his message about the kingdom of God and what it implied about his own authority, that this man rose physically from the dead. And that this event alone, the physical resurrection of Jesus, can explain the genesis of the early Christian movement and its eschatological message. Why did early Christianity arise historically? Because Jesus rose physically. And Rahner says, if you can't defend both these things as historical truths... Christianity is out of business. doesn't mean you can prove them. Obviously, we can't prove Jesus rose to the dead. That's the mystery of faith. But you can show that there's a certain kind of historical rationality that believing those things, positing those things historically, helps explain the origin of Christianity in a way no other belief could. That, they give, that, that gives the most uh, intelligence to the evidences we have. Now, you may be saying to yourself, neither of these claims pertains directly to the most important claim of, of Christianity in the New Testament, the explicit claim of the early Christian community that Jesus is Lord, God the Son, the Son of God, Himself truly God, deserving reverence and worship reserved to the one God of Israel. And that is, of course, true. If you don't believe Jesus is God, Catholicism is false. <laughs> yes, so why doesn't Rahner put that there? Well, because... He's talking about two minimal historical features that have an imp apologetic uh, importance. They allow you to establish an implicit high Christology. Now, by high Christology, you mean a Christology which teaches the divinity of Christ. Jesus is not just man, but also God and Lord. The Son of God, God the Son. But, you only have to have, as you're doing this kind of historical exploration, an implicit high Christology. That's that Jesus said and did the kinds of things that implied his own awareness of his divine authority. That once Jesus rose from the dead, uh, this 
revealed or confirmed in an absolute way that Jesus was the Lord. After all, the apostles only fully understand the identity of Jesus as Lord and God after the resurrection. Even the Gospels themselves are explicit about that. If Thomas, in John 20, putting his hand in the wounds and he says, my Lord and my God, and you know, St. Thomas says famously, he saw a man resurrected, he confessed the divinity of the man resurrected. He didn't see the Godhead of Christ. He believed it. So he's confessing something more than what he saw. He saw the physically resurrected, glorified body of Christ. He confessed the deity of Christ. So he understands that after the resurrection. Now, whether the apostles began to understand the implicit deity, the divinity of Christ before the resurrection, is an important question. It seems to me clear that the Gospels suggest that they did. But Rahner's point is, you only need an implicit claim to authority before the resurrection in the form of a high eschatological messianic consciousness, Jesus aware of being Messiah and bringing in the eschaton and calling himself in some way the exclusive son of the Father. And it becomes explicit to the apostles after the resurrection who he was. That's fair. It's not the only way to construe it, but that's a fair way to say that, that you need minimally to be able to defend that kind of story. So, you know, if we had all the time in the world, I'd give a lecture on this, this belief in the historicity of the resurrection, physical resurrection of Jesus. And I have some readings on there if you want to read some things about it. But what I'm going to talk about today is Jesus in his historical context as a first century Jew of the time of the second, what we call the Second Temple uh, and Second Temple Judaism. Jesus' eschatological consciousness in that context. How does Jesus manifest in the Gospels as a first century Jew? Putting him in his, think about him, these sayings and, and actions in their context. How does he manifest his, his identity and authority as Messiah, and even in some sense implicitly as Lord, or as standing in the place of the God of Israel, doing things that are normally reserved to the God of Israel, that Jews at the time would have understood in that way, and therefore would have taken offense at, or been mystified by, or found extremely challenging. I'm going to talk about, um, now I'm going to employ the principles I wrote on the board in the last course, and I'm going to just talk about seven basic, if I can get to them all, uh, symbols or uh, symbolic or um, characteristic features of Jesus' consciousness and mission in its historical context that give an indication of who he thinks he is as eschatological consciousness. And this is, again, starting from not principles of certitude of faith, first and foremost. I mean, if you ask me what I believe about the New Testament historic, historically, as a believer, I'm the kind of person who thinks probably it's all, it's all true. You know, I just think it's all true. But if I employ the historical critical method, I'm trying to find, based on the fact that I'm interacting with skeptics, what are the kinds of things that it would be reasonably certain, say, almost certainly has to have happened or seem likely to have happened, um, given the principles of just pure rational history. And what kind of portrait can we build up of the historical Jesus in this context, minimalistically? So it's a minimalist project. It's not a maximalist project. The rest of the course we're going to do, we're going to like really get into the New Testament theology of Jesus as understood by later tradition. Here I'm just kind of defending apologetically that even using these more skeptical criteria, you still turn up a kind of rational necessity or at least a kind of rational probability fittingness of a very high Christology. Whether or not I believe Jesus was God or rose from the dead, it's not unreasonable to believe, even if I were an atheist, if I may put it that way that Jesus had a very high self-conception that he taught that he had an, an extremely unique authority and that that was the reason he was killed. 
So let's start with a, a, a classic example. Uh, most of my readings are going to come from the Gospel of Mark. If you want to open the Bible and try to, uh, you don't have to read every verse, but you know, just um, what happens beginning of the Gospel of Mark? Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. Now, I've already explained from the principle of embarrassment why most scholars see this is in John one nine through eleven. In those days, Jesus came from this is verse nine in the first chapter. In those days, Jesus uh, came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And then you have the, the theophany that's reported by the, the gospel writers. When he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice that came from heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, with thee I am well pleased. Immediately the gospel writer is identifying to you who this person is. He's the Son of God. What does that mean? Well, that's an interesting question. Probably signifies something uh, more than simply messianic um, messianic office, it probably signifies that he is ontologically the Son of God. That means that he's God, right? For the Gospel writer. That's presupposing that you can have you know, a theological insight. The, I'm, I'm sticking with it, verse 9, the fact, the more visible element, right? That the claim that Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, most scholars consider this to be probably a historical likelihood, given that no matter how skeptical, given the principle of embarrassment I talked about earlier. But, why would it be controversial for the Jews of Jesus' time to baptize in the Jordan? It's a rite of purification. Why would that be controversial? Sorry? If Jesus is God, yeah. then he does not. That's for the later Christian movement. Absolutely. The early, later Christian movement, that's another interesting... They think he's God, so why do they have him being baptized? And that's the whole... That, that's the later speculation. That's exactly the question Thomas Aquinas will take up. But for the Jews of the time who don't believe in the divinity of Christ or, or Jesus, they also have a problem with this for different reasons. Not just with Jesus being baptized, but anybody being baptized in the Jordan. Why? Well, yeah, you're, getting, that's, you're getting warm. Where do the purification rites take place? In the temple. This is a right for the forgiveness of sins outside the temple. So why see the Pharisees and scribes come down and they say to John the Baptist, who do you think you are? And they want to know. Right, because the claim is, if you're if you're innovating in terms of rights of forgiveness, you're doing something that Moses didn't prescribe. That means you take yourself to be a prophet. There hasn't been prophecy in Israel for hundreds of years. So they ask him, "Are you a prophet? Who do you think you are? What are you doing?" Right. I mean, the analogy is enough to somebody instituted an eighth sacrament, except for we know Revelation's closed, so we would know that person is a heretic. And as good Dominicans, we have them condemned by the church. This is where they 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 don't they know that Revelation is still open. Right? Or they, they wonder if it is. So it's the authentic prophet. But so you see the, the, the tension for the Jews is very, is very important. Why is, why is the Jordan important? What happened at the Jordan River? Into the promised land, right? You come through the waters into the promised land, right? What are we talking about? A refounding of Israel. It's a radical symbol. Okay? So, uh, I mean, the, the claim here is that there can be purification that comes from outside the temple system of sacrifices. One, right? You can get purification from outside the temple system of sacrifices. And secondly, it suggests a symbolic return of Israel to the promised land. Probably an eschatological purification. In the end times, the Messiah is going to purify Israel. You have in Ezekiel the promise of a new temple. There's a lot of... Uh, the, you have the, uh, Quran, the um, Qumran community right in that area. The Qumran community in the Dead Sea Scrolls who are talking about an eschatological purification of the temple. And you've got John the Baptist in that very neighborhood 
at the Jordan River where the Jews crossed over into the Holy Land reenacting the founding of the Holy Land. You know, as if the, in the end times Israel is going to be purified and redeemed. And Jesus is in the middle of that. Okay, so there's something fundamental there. Secondly, you find a willingness of Jesus to supersede purity laws and reinterpret moral teachings of the Torah. The purity laws and moral te- purity laws and moral teachings of the Torah. He is willing to supersede them. Why is this significant? Who instituted the Torah? God. <laughs> God through Moses, right? So, I mean, in order to sort of, you know, for the Jews, the mentality, Jewish mentality at the time, you know, the Torah, probably the belief of most of them is the Torah is written almost exclusively by Moses. A lot of it's divine, if not divine dictation, at least some kind of divine inspiration. They don't have, maybe, I don't know how technical their theories of inspiration were at the time, but... In other words, Jesus reinterpreting the purity laws and the moral teachings of the Torah suggests that he takes himself to be an ultimate interpreter of the law, which is, after all, the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, particularly Deuteronomy. Moses says in Deuteronomy, at the end, a prophet will come who's greater than I, a prophet like me, he says. And there was the belief that the Messiah would be able to interpret certain dimensions of the Torah in an ultimate fashion. He declares foods clean, Christ does, or at least so it seems. Um that suggests that he thinks himself in some way able to interpret fundamental aspects of Leviticus. So, I mean, a classic example is Matthew 5. Sermon on the Mount. Um, For example, Matthew 5.21 You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not kill and whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother shall be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool shall be liable to the hell of fire. 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away, etc. Um, It was also said, this is verse 31, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of unchastity makes her an adulteress. Again you have said, this is verse 33, again you have heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not swear falsely. But I say to you, do not swear at all, etc., etc. You have heard an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Where does all this stuff come from? Moses, Mosaic Law. Most of those are, a number of those are actually from the most sacred part of the Torah the Ten Commandments. Who uttered the Ten Commandments from within the narrative structure of the Torah? God. Right? The I and the you, it's, it's Yahweh. It's the Lord speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, inscribing the tablets. So it's supreme authority. And yet what is he doing? He's giving crib notes to supreme authority, right? I mean, he's saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And he's, as it were, each time kind of tight, interiorizing the commandment. But in some way, also, I mean, altering the, the understanding. You know, and where is he doing this in Matthew? On the top of a hill. <laughs> I mean, what, what we would have already call a hill. But, with, you know, the Sermon on the Mountain. So, who's speaking? Not the Lord, but Jesus. Or Jesus in place of the Lord. Right? See, the symbolic, the symbolic importance for a Jew of the time is, in, is unavoidable. He's... he's it, the way Matthew portrays it, at least, Jesus is, is basically giving a new Decalogue. But only God gives the Decalogue. 
Right, so there's a claim to a, a sort of extremely significant authority to act or teach in the place of the God of Israel if you put him in that historical context. Now, these aren't just timeless claims, like if Jesus was saying, well, you know, from all time to all time I have the same authority. As the Lord of Israel, he's, it's also an, there's a historical or eschatological dimension. It's the claim that it's the time of final revelation. And there's a more definitive and ultimate interpretation of the Torah that has now come that's fulfilling it. That's why he says right before, he says all this, I've not come to destroy or abolish, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. So it's the claim that in the end times, the messianic emissary of God is, is coming to bring the final interpretations of the Torah to the people of God. Look at um, another example of this in Mark 2. Verses 23 um, and onward. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their ways, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath, as they working? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? Interestingly, David is, of course, the father, you know, the, the source of the, I mean, the king of Israel, and therefore the, the, the Messiah descends from him. When he was in need and was hungry, and he, those who were with him, how they entered the house of God, when uh, Abiathar was high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now there's that cryptic phrase, Son of Man, which I think I'm going to come back to. Yeah, I have a section on that. But I mean, you know, it's important that he's saying that whoever this mysterious son of man is, he has authority over the Sabbath. And then right after this, he heals on the Sabbath. And they, they say to him, why are you doing this on the Sabbath? And then he says, he has the authority to do so. Again, claiming a, a kind of, it's not directly against the priest, the first precept is to honor God, you know, and to, and to honor him on the, 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 the Sabbath of each week. It's not that he's claiming to abolish the precept, but he claims a kind of absolute jurisdiction over the interpretation of how it should be understood. Okay? So, thirdly, there are messianic claims. Clearly, unambiguously. Some messianic claims on the part of Jesus. Uh, look at uh, Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, why would mentioning the kingdom of God have an important significance for the Jews of Jesus' time? What's the institution that's most conspicuously absent? The monarchy. Right, the monarchy. The priesthood and the monarchy have been, as it were, the, the backbone of the structure of, of Israel's um, government and, and cult. Right? The priesthood was abolished temporarily during the Babylonian exile and reestablished by Ezra and Nehemiah when they rebuilt the second temple uh, hundreds of years, you know, some 500 years before the time of Jesus. The monarchy was never reestablished. So, so the, I mean, the people are living really without um, uh, without the divinic monarchy. So, when will that be established? When the Messiah returns, who's a descendant of David? So, when he, when he talks about a kingdom of God, it, it has overtones for the Jewish mentality that are in, unavoidably not. We, let's say political is not is not high enough. I mean, 
political religious, political theological, political eschatological. At the end times, the Messiah will reestablish the Davidic monarchy and will triumph over the opponents of Israel. Who's running the country? Pagan Romans. Right? What's the language they're speaking? Greek. Right? So there's a foreign invader. How do you reestablish order? Only when there's a political autonomy so that Israel can become more fully herself, her mission, etc. So there's a political expectation, a political messianism in the air. At least there are some people who propose that. You know? But so there's a paradox, of course, because Jesus' kingdom of God isn't a military, political, institutional uh, kingdom. And Paul, the early Christians preached that the kingdom of God has come. Of course, the person they claim it came in, they claim was a person who was crucified. You see the problem? You know, I mean, this is political deliverance is to be crucified by the Romans. This is a highly problematic, paradoxical claim. But uh, in any case, Jesus doesn't just talk about the fact that the kingdom of God has come, but he, uh, re- he articulates a theology of the kingdom in a seemingly theocentric rather than militaristic sense. His parables of the kingdom of God, this, I mean, this is one, this is, if there's one theme in, that everybody agrees the historical Jesus must have talked about incessantly, it's the kingdom of God. It's, it's all through all the Gospels. It's in the parables, it's in the healings. He's always talking about the kingdom of God. Cryptic, again. Cryptic. What does it mean? The parables of the kingdom of God suggest an imminent, inbreaking, but hidden kingdom that is being realized in his ministry. So, playing off the, the messianic expectations of the Jews, he's, there's principal similarity and dissimilarity. It's both like their expectations and unlike them. Because he's claiming there's a hidden kingdom coming through his miracle working uh, that's inbreaking, that's becoming imminent. The healings and the exorcisms are to be understood as signs of the kingdoms of God. Like signs of the kingdom of God. So it's a funny way for the kingdom to come, spiritually, as it were, through the healing of the, the people uh, who he encounters in his ministry, uh, the forgiveness of sins, through eating with sinners, through reconciliation with people who are exiled from the covenant, sometimes people who are not uh, Orthodox Jews, um, and, uh, th- and through the deliverance of people from uh, possession or uh, sickness. Uh, according to Mark 12, 35 through 37, let me turn to that real quick and read it. Mark 12, 35 through 37. Jesus applied the Messianic Psalm 110, the 110th Psalm to himself as one greater than David. So this is in 1235. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that Christ is the Son of David? David himself declared, inspired by the Holy Spirit. David himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit, declared, and this is Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right till I put my enemies under thy feet. And then Jesus continues, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now what's going on there? Um, Basically, the Jews of the time considered Psalm 110 to be written by David, and they considered it to be a messianic psalm about the Messiah who is to come. And in Psalm 110, the writer, author, who they took to be David, says, The Lord said to my Lord, meaning um, God, the Lord of Israel, said to my Lord, the Messiah, who is my superior, sit at my right till I put my enemies under thy feet. In other words, the Messiah will have the enemies of Israel put at his feet by the Lord, God of Israel. The Lord God of Israel will say to my Lord, the Messiah, I will put your enemies under thy feet. 
And David, he then, Jesus reasons, this, this is strange because David is calling his own descendant his superior. But how can someone who descends from, uh, who, how can someone who descends from David, who is the Messiah, be superior to David? David is his is his ancestor. Right. I mean, the answer is obviously because there's something about the identity of the Messiah that makes him higher than anyone else. Again, it's in what we call implicit high Christology. He's just intimating that he has an authority. First of all, he's intimating that he's the Messiah. I mean, if the historical Jesus said this, if he didn't say anything else in the whole book, and he said this, he would be intimating clearly in the Jewish mentality of his time that he was the Messiah, that he was a descendant of David, and that he had an authority greater than that of David, that he had an authority akin to that of the Lord God of Israel. Now, how could a Greek make this up? Right? I mean, this only can come out of a Jewish worldview. This is something from the Judaism of Jesus' time. You can't have Mark making this up like as a, you know, in a, in a Greek-speaking world. This only makes sense from a, a Jewish matrix of thought. It takes less work to even figure out what they're thinking. You see? Um, when Jesus, in all four Gospels, enters the holy city seated on the back of a donkey... This is patterned after a prophecy all the Jews at the time would have known well, Zechariah 9 9, which you've all heard. This is season, you always read this. Um, Zechariah 9 9, should be the last book in the Old Testament. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on an ass on a colt, the foal of an ass. The king, the king. Who is the king? Zechariah is written after there's no more divinic monarchy. It's an eschatological prophecy. There's no king in Israel when he writes this. When the king comes, he'll come to you humble. Right, so what they, again, write, I mean, just writing the don't, that certainly that book was written before Jesus rode into Jerusalem, right? So, I mean, it's very clear the symbolism he's saying. He's saying he's, there's a pretense or a claim to be the eschatological king of Israel but a paradoxical fulfillment of that kingship. Principle of similarity and dissimilarity. He's like the expectation and very unlike the expectation. Scandalously unlike. So unlike that it could offend the high priests as an act of blasphemy. It could get you crucified. It makes sense. Principle of causality. It explains how things unfolded. If the historical Jesus did that in his historical context, it was an explosive symbol. The kind of thing that could lead to crucifixion. The kind of thing that could lead to early Christian movement of claiming we have a crucified Messiah, and this is a good thing, right? I mean, it begins to narrate. The narration begins to make sense as a as a kind of historical understanding of Jesus in his historical context. All of this suggests that Jesus thinks in some way. I mean, this is one thing N.T. Wright has really emphasized: is that it seems that seems likely that the Jew, there's a theology, well, it's a fact, that there's a theology in the air you find, especially in the latter part of Isaiah, so-called third Isaiah. How many authors there are in Isaiah is complicated. There's probably at least two, um, but probably also a third. In the latter part of Isaiah, you have a, a theologian or a prophetic writer who's saying, um, basically saying, even though Israel's returned from Babylon in the 6th century B.C., we're still in exile because our country's still broken because we're still not obeying the law. So there's this theology of perpetual exile. That Israel lives in exile so long as the whole integrity of the people of God and her covenant is not restored. That includes things like the divinic monarchy, which since it's abolished or not functional, you still are link have the lingering effects of exile. Israel's still lingering in exile. 
And so there's probably a kind of claim on Jesus' part that he's bringing an end to the exile. This is N.T. Wright's great art, one of his great arguments. And like things like being baptized in the Jordan suggest that. Like we're coming in, Israel's coming back into the promised land symbolically. The, the country's being restored. We're returning from the exile, coming back across the from the pagan side over to the Holy Land. So the baptism of Christ could be a symbol of that. I mean he's got a whole range of you know arguments about that, which I probably convincing to well they're convincing to a lot of us. Fourth point the choice of twelve disciples. Why is twelve significant? Twelve tribes right. who are descent from Jacob, whose other name was Israel. Right. So there are the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, of course, a lot of the tribes have been abolished by this time. Right? I mean, the, the, the lineages are lost and that kind of thing. Um, so there's the claim to refound. I mean, if it seems uncontroversial, it seems hard to. There's so much. I mean, Paul, when he talks about the resurrection in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 probably written about 55 late 50's uh, so 20 20 years after the end of the public ministry of Jesus he talks about he appeared first to Peter then he appeared to the 12 and last he appeared to me as one untimely born but I mean he mentions the 12 just in passing so everybody knows there was a 12 meanwhile you get references to the 12 all through the gospels so it seems pretty hard to deny there were some group of people called the 12 why do they have authority in their early church? Well, presumably because Jesus appointed them. I mean, in other words, from a skeptical historical point of view, it seems it seems to resist too much acid skepticism. You have to pretty much hold there was some group of people in the early church who had this authority because they were chosen by Christ, called the Twelve. Well, of course, that's significant because it meant he had the pretension or the, the belief that he was refounding Israel. Or there's no other symbolism that could be so evident as that this is the, the refounding of the twelve tribes. Of course, it's important that it's not genealogically transmitted, right? Because they're not becoming the fathers of tribes. How are they transmitting admission into the tribal identity of the covenant? Baptism. But that's another, you know, we'll get to that. Um, and it's, of course, very significant that Jesus, there's not eleven disciples. Because if there were eleven, Jesus would be one of the twelve, right? right? So he's above that. He institutes the twelve. Again, that claim to authority is to have I mean, an authority analogous to the Lord of Israel who established the twelve tribes and a covenant with them. He's establishing twelve apostles. Again, it's like the Sermon on the Mount, the principle of semiotic coherence. Like what he does in the Sermon on the Mount, he does also in establishing the twelve. He's claiming to have a kind of analogous authority to the God of Israel in each case. Totally different examples. You know, if, if one happened historically, you couldn't prove the other happened historically. But the fact that you can have both claims... It, it, it starts to paint the picture of a mentality. A mentality of a person who would say, it was said unto you in the Decalogue this, but I say to you that, standing on a mountain. A person who would say, you know, God chose 12 tribes in the Old Testament, I'm choosing 12 apostles. Right? There's a kind of characteristic symbolic overlap there. And he says in Matthew 19 that this group of people are going to have an eschatological significance. Again, the notion of an eschatological consciousness. This is Matthew 19, 27 through 29. Which, incidentally, is also found in Luke, but not in Mark. Now, things that are found, sayings that are found in Luke and in, in Matthew, but not in Mark or John, generally thought to, well, a lot of people believe, belong to a, a source document of sayings called Q. We, it's called Q for Kel in, uh, in uh, 
German, however you pronounce that, which would mean source. So it seems there was some source of some, some I mean, most biblical scholars, not all, it's all embarrassing about it, but I mean, there seems to be some group of sayings that are, there's certainly some group of sayings common to Luke and, and Matthew, which again, principle of, um, oh, whatever it's called, uh, but, you know, different sources. Um, anyway, what he says here is, um, then Peter said in reply, lo, we have left everything and followed you, what then shall we have? Typical Petrine question. He, Peter could have been a Dominican. Uh, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man shall sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands for My sake will receive a hundredfold inherit eternal life. So, He promises to, according to these saying, this saying, which again could be from a very early source book of Jesus' sayings, that they will sit in eschatological judgment. So the twelve have some kind of final place in the history of humanity. It's a very high claim. So as that last saying alluded to, there's the Son of Man saying. Let's turn to that. This is my fifth point. Well, we're probably going to I'll probably go five minutes over, but anyway. The Son of Man sayings certainly seem to originate with historical Jesus. A majority of scholars think they refer to the eschatological representative of Israel in Daniel 7. In the book of Daniel, chapter 7, there's an eschatological figure who clearly seems to be a Messiah figure in whom Israel is vindicated over her enemies. Let me read the passage real quick. This is Daniel having visions in the night. And he says this. Daniel seven thirteen and following. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God, and was presented before him. So you have this messianic, eschatological son of man coming before the God of Israel. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom. That's why they think it's messianic, because it mentions a kingdom. The son of man inherits a kingdom. And all peoples, when you read peoples, think Gentile nations, non-Jews. All peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. So he's a Jewish messianic king in whom Israel triumphs over all the pagan nations. The Babylonians, for example, who are oppressing this small group of people and beating them into submission. So it's going to be reversed. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. An everlasting perpetual kingdom. Israel's Messiah vindicated by God, seated at you know, the side of God. You know, and it's probably a reference to the psalm, what is it, 21, 22, of the Messiah seated at the right hand of God. Okay. So, as they appear in the synoptic uh, tradition, these Son of Man sayings of Jesus can be placed in roughly three groups. This has been Witherington on page 55, his text. When Jesus talks about Son of Man, of course, there's similarity and dissimilarity. He's both appealing to this messianic theology, which was not, which was, we do find some Son of Man stuff in the intertestamental literature of the Jewish writing at the time of Jesus, but not a lot. So it's kind of a weird, rare term to appeal to. But Jesus is also reinterpreting it. So first of all, you find Jesus uh, making authority claims. Jesus claims that the Son of Man has authority over the Sabbath, which I've read earlier, or the authority to forgive sins. For example, when he heals the paralytic at the beginning of Mark 2, you know, he, he says to him, your sins are forgiven. They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? Quite rightly, they ask that question. And he says, so that you know the Son of Man has authority, I say to you, get up and walk. 
Right, so the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, which seems to be an authority reserved to the God of Israel. Again, an implicit high Christology or a very high eschatological consciousness. Secondly, Son of Man sayings are employed by Jesus in the form of suffering and death predictions. And this is, a, this is the most paradoxical or odd. Jesus prophecies the death of the Son of Man as the key to the divine economy. You have famously in Mark's Gospel three foretellings of the Passion in 8.31, in 9.30, and in 10.32. In 8.31, in 9.30, and 10.32. In each of those times, Jesus says the Son of Man will be given over to the chief priests and scribes and he'll be rejected and he'll be crucified. So the Son of Man, presumably then of Daniel, the eschatological Messiah in whom Israel will be vindicated over the pagan nations, is going to be killed. <laughs> and the most radical sort of theological nugget in this respect, I think, first that there's a lot of written on and debated about is Mark 10.45. This is when the, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest among them. Uh, and he says, uh, the Gentiles, you know, this is Mark 10, 40, 42, you know that those who are supposed to rule over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever should be great among you must be your servant. And of course the word is in Greek, not in Hebrew, but in Greek the word servant and slave are the same. Right? It's a very radical saying. The person who is in authority is the slave. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. They, the RSV has servant and slave. They kept the, the, the double sense of the word by translating it one way each time. That's a pretty, pretty good idea. And then he says this, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now this is one of the most incredibly interesting passages in the New Testament because clearly he, well, it seems he's referring to the Son of Man from Daniel. If you recall, in Daniel it said all the nations will come before him and he will have dominion over them. So what is he doing? He's reinterpreting it. He's saying the Son of Man is not one that everyone will serve, but he's one who's come to serve. You see? He's inverting the promise. He's saying, where is the eschatological triumph of Israel going to come from? The Son of Man vindicating Israel through service. Now, do you hear any echoes of another passage of Scripture in this? For the Son of Man came not to serve, be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Philippians. Absolutely. Philippians and this passage are reference to an Old Testament. Yes, we're going to talk about that passage tonight, actually but an older passage that both Philippians and this are referring to. Uh, the washing of the feet has overtones of it, but I'm thinking about an Old Testament text that would have already existed at the time of Jesus that would have been nor a normative text. What? Where? The suffering servant. It's a, it's a pretty clear reference to the suffering servant. Isaiah 53 uh, <coughs> This is 53.11. He shall see the fruit of the travail of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Right? He, the servant, will save the many. What is Jesus saying here? Right? Isaiah 45. The Son of Man, from Daniel, 
who has dominion over the nations, came not to be one who dominates, but one who is the suffering servant, who will pour out his life in service to make many just. He has the same phrase, for the many. So it's like if he's wedding the theology of Daniel, of the eschatological triumph of the Messiah over the powers uh, of the pagan nations, with the theology of the, the dereliction of the suffering servant, who pours out his life to make the many just. And so the Messiah is a martyr, or the Messiah is one who gives his life in ransom for the many. Isn't that interesting? Now that's not coming from the Greek and Roman mind. That's pure Jewish theology. But it's very peculiar. And there's no other instance in ancient Jewish literature of the time period of somebody wedding Daniel with the suffering servant. Though it's very interesting to think of it as Jesus' own theology of him reinterpreting the Danielic prophecy of the eschatological victory of the Son of Man with the prophecy of the suffering servant and saying the Messiah is the suffering servant. The suffering servant is the Messiah. There is in one of the glosses on, of the time in Aramaic on the suffering servant a claim that the suffering servant will be the Messiah. There is not a claim that the suffering servant who is the Messiah is also the eschatological Son of Man. So you've got something sort of fits into the time period you can imagine a first century Jew saying this, but nobody else said it, and it's very unique. And it makes sense of Jesus' claims that the Son of Man will be crucified. Principle of coherence. You see, I mean, it makes some sense. And then lastly, you have the claims that this Son of Man will be an eschatological judge. Jesus says the Son of Man is He who will sit in judgment over the nations, who will return in the glory of His Father. Mark 13, 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He says in Mark 8.38, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now this is interesting. The Son of Man has God as his Father in an exclusive way. The Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father. This leads us into the language of sonship, which is next. How one reacts to the Son of Man will also affect how one is judged in light of God, which is, you don't get a higher claim than that. Where you stand with regards to my mission is how you will stand before God in eternal judgment. In the face of this imminent execution, according to Mark, Jesus claimed to be this exalted figure actually, or soon to be, seated at the right hand of the Father. Mark 14.62, Christ the high priest asks him, um, this is 1462, uh, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus responds, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In other words, he's claiming to be uh, the exalted Messiah figure of Psalm 110. Psalm 110 says, uh, he talks about the Messiah seated at the right hand of God. I don't know if I'll get to both the others, but let's talk about the sonship. This is point six. Jesus speaks about being the Son of God, or having being God as His Father. Now, one indication of this in terms of a historical principle of um, multiple attestation is that you find uh, Abba. It, it's not a rock band from the 70s. It's a, it's a Christian theological term. All right. Anyway. Uh, I suppose you guys are insulated from that, so yeah, I don't really need to go into those cultural examples. All right. 
Anyway, Abba is a term used by Christ taught to his disciples, connoting the awareness of a special and unique intimacy with God as his Father. Where do you see this? Well, Paul talks about it a couple times in Galatians 4.6, in Romans 8.15. The Holy Spirit makes us cry, Abba, Father. Why is that significant? Who is he writing to? People who speak Greek. But he's using a term in Aramaic. Why are they transmitting that you should use this term in Aramaic? Because Jesus used it. Right. And we know from historical scholarship it was not a customary thing for Jews at the time to call God by this title. It expresses a kind of familial intimacy that wasn't typical for Jews to talk about God this way. So they preserved something that came from the early Aramaic tradition of the church, obviously, in all likelihood, from Jesus himself. And you see it in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, where the Gospel writers purposefully keep, uh, and this is in Mark 14.36, for example, in Mark 14.36, you have Jesus um, calling uh, God Abba. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible to thee. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what thou will. And the idea there is that, of course, this is written in Greek, but they've retained the Aramaic term Abba because Jesus used it and because they've preserved the usage of it by the Christian community who prays to God as their Father with the words that Jesus taught them. So, it seems that Christ considered that he had a particularly acute, familiar, uh, filial intimacy with God. Now, of course, that could be open to any kind of interpretation. People say, well, so he brought his Frederick Schleiermacher, great, the great father of liberal Protestantism. In the 18th century, Jesus had this extraordinary God-consciousness of God as his father that we all have to share in, and this gets diluted into all this new age baloney that you get, you know, if you had an Abba Father experience like Jesus had. And of course, once you've had the experience, you kind of bypass Jesus. You don't need him anymore. You've found the, the Christ consciousness, and you don't need the actual story of Jesus. So, I mean, you know, there's a certain vagueness to this. Let's not try to build all of our Christology on what Jesus was thinking or aware of when he used this term. But the point of it for us is that Jesus seems to have made many claims, this being one of the indications, that he had some kind of uniquely filial identity. So I'm going to talk about some of those. In Mark 13.32, Jesus says, No one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. This is a fascinating statement, right? Because of the principle of embarrassment. The early Christian movement clearly thinks Jesus is, is the Lord, God. And yet here, they're passing on a saying in which Jesus admits ignorance or says he doesn't know the time of the, the last end, end of the age. Though by the, according to the principle of embarrassment, most scholars would say that Jesus may have said something like this because why would the Christian community report something that it seems in tension with their deeper claims theologically about Jesus' divine identity? So, let's say for the sake of argument then that, you know, using that skeptical reasoning... Uh, Jesus did say this. No one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. But notice what that says about him. Even if he does claim there or suggest that he doesn't have knowledge or he's not given to communicate to us knowledge at the end times, he is claiming to be a son in an exclusive way. It's not a son, it's the, the son. There's only one son. It's him. And the son is above the angels, who are, after all, God's highest spiritual creatures in the Jewish mentality of time. So, I mean, it's still a claim to be, it's still an unambiguous claim to have a unique filial identity that no one else shares in. In the parable of the vineyard and the tenants in Mark 12, 1 through 12, 
you have God giving the, he tells the, the parable of the vineyard where the landowner leaves the tenants there and they, he keeps sending them up the prophets and they kill them and finally he says I will send my son they will have to respect my son and what do they do they kill him and they cast him out and he says well what's going to happen to those people well he says the landowner is going to come and he's going to destroy that place it's a prophecy really about the destruction of the state of, 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 of Israel and the kind of transference of the promises perhaps uh, to the Christian movement or something along those lines but in any case, in the parable, in the logic of the parable, Jesus is not a prophet among other prophets. He's the unique Son of God. He's the final emissary of God. He's the messianic eschatological prophet. He's the final one God sends, who is His Son in a way no one else is. You have Matthew 11:25 through 27, which is called sometimes the Jonah Thunderbolt because it sounds like something from John. And which is also found in Luke. It's part of the Q source. So it could be an early Aramaic, in the early Aramaic source book of Jesus' sayings. Mark, uh, Matthew 11, 25-27, he says, No one knows the Father but the Son, and no one knows the Son but the Father. There's an exclusive mutuality between the Father and the Son that no one else shares in. And it denotes, and he's denoting at the same time, excuse me, denoting at the same time, a deeply relational character of the Father and Son as persons. All this suggests that Jesus' sense of his eschatological mission and authority was deeply related to a sense of his unique filiation. Jesus is bringing in the end times and is the ultimate emissary of God also because he's the unique son of God whose life among us represents the culmination of the divine economy. Now I have a, just a couple of words. Let me just say a couple of words about the institution. This is the last point. The symbolic purification of the temple and the institution of the Eucharist. And there's really a lot one could say here but I'm going to boil it down. Another factor, in, another symbol of Jesus' eschatological consciousness is his multiple, multiple attestation of um, the coherence of his claims that the, 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 the temple is coming to an end. You have the prophecy of the destruction of the temple in Mark 13, 1-2. And he says it's a judgment of God. You have the gesture in the temple in Mark 11, 15-19 where he overturns the money changing changing table. Now, we always think about that, people always preach about that as a kind of symbolic, you know, you should really love God and worship Him and not be attached to the things of this world. And Okay, yeah, that's all true. But it's probably something much more interesting going on there, which is that they had to exchange Roman coinage to get Jewish coinage to buy the sacrifices in a pure way to then go sacrifice in the temple. Now, that's all legitimate. So why does he do this? Because he simply may be a purification, it could have a moral dimension, sure. But, you know, he just say you've made a place of banditry. But it seems more likely that what, it's, a, it's, a, it's a prophetic symbol. You overturn, what happens when you overturn the money? You interrupt the whole causality of the sacrifice system. You stop the sacrifices temporarily. I mean, for an hour, however long it takes them to pick up the coinage. But the point is, it's saying sacrifices are going to stop. It's the end of sacrifice in this place. Now see, when he says the temple is going to be destroyed, when he says that when he interrupts the temple sacrifice by a prophetic gesture, when he says what he seems to have in John and in Mark, you have some multiple attestation criteria. They said, tear down this temple and I'll build it up again in three days, which can only be a prophetic reference to his body. When he claims to be himself the new temple, and when he institutes the Eucharist as the sacrifice in his blood. Now, it's sacrificial. You see, that's all coherent. He's transferring the, t- the sacrifices from the temple to 
the sacrifice of his own death, the death of the Son of Man, who will give his life for his ransom for the many. And then this will be transferred as the new locus of sacrifice for the not just for the people of Israel, but for all the Gentile nations, who will enter the twelve tribes not through birth now, but through baptism and the Eucharist into the covenant that's been completed and fulfilled. The covenant with Moses and Abraham has now been opened through his death to all the nations. Right? And you can build up this case a lot, a lot more, you know, but I'm mean, just kind of indicating a way of seeing Jesus as a first century Jew who thinks he's opening the covenant with the authority of the God of Israel that he shares in as the son of, that, of God. He's opening up that covenant to all the nations through his own redemptive death. Right? I mean, there's sort of coherence in all that. Uh, and there's more one could say that about particularly I just mentioned briefly Exodus he, he, when he says this is the, the covenant of my blood um, the blood of the new covenant the, the, the phrase blood of the covenant is a, a phrase no Jew could fail to understand it's a reference to Exodus 24 4 through 9 which we just heard about where uh, Moses takes the blood at the very beginning of the covenant he, fa- he kills the, the, the animals and he sprinkles the blood of bulls over the twelve tribes you are in covenant with God now. It's the foundational sacrifice of the whole covenant. And Jesus is claiming my blood will be the foundational sacrifice of the covenant. No, no longer the covenant originally with Moses and the Mosaic law, but now the new covenant in my blood. So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot you can sort of build up. And he says, poured for the many. Again, that's a reference to Isaiah 53, suffering servant theology. Suffering servant will shed his blood to bring everyone into the fullness of this covenant. All right. To conclude, if only one of these seven lines of interpretation of the historical Jesus were true historically, and there are many others that could be named, I just picked seven of the most important, then there would be little doubt that the historical Jesus saw and understood himself as standing in a unique historical, theological, and eschatological role. That that's his self-understanding was... You know, if these convergent dimensions of his ministry denote his true aims and self-regard, if they all converge in some hard, higher picture, then he cannot be simply concerned with social or political reform or religious purity in his own age of ancient Judaism or even with imminent apocalyptic expectations. Some people think Jesus was just a kind of imminent preaching the end of the world and he was wrong. You know. No. Instead, he's aware of his own mission to reveal a new and definitive moment in the divine economy and to bring about a fundamental realization of the Father's will for Israel and for all humanity. The summit or apex of this redemptive mission hinges on the Paschal mystery, the death and resurrection or exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of God. That's to say, Jesus saw his death and, and, and um, exaltation through resurrection as ushering in the last age of humanity as the eschatological victory of the God of Israel. And if you want to study this more, N.T. Wright is the way to go. The little books are his bigger books. N.T. Wright's got some very interesting things on all of this. Uh, there's a number of guys. I've got, they're in the syllabus. Larry Hurtado teaches at Edinburgh. Richard Bauckham, Ben Witherington. These, I mean, the sort of things I'm sketching out here in one hour. These people uh, write about it at great length, and you can kind of think about Jesus in a historical context. Okay, I'm sorry I went over. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth.